Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Today, as we begin the sixth episode of Sound FX, I have a number of important little announcements to make. First off, I want to thank our generous sponsors, Ian and Sarah Maggot, for sponsoring today's class, today's Torah study, in honor of a Kativa Vachatima Tova, so that there be a positive, a good inscription as Hashem writes our program for the next year, and that we be sealed in Merz Hashem for a year that is good in a way so overt that we can actually taste its sweetness. And of course, we all pray for good health. And we believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Almighty, loves each and every one of us. And that good things are being written, good programs are being created for us. We have to download it. We have to reveal this. And that's really what today's class, as the whole series is about, how to best actualize, how to best bring forth, how to connect to that spiritual iCloud, how to activate our soulware so that we can become conduits for the Shana Teva Umasuka for the year that'll be Be'ezrat Hashem, good and sweet. Good and sweet means it's not good on faith. Because we believe that nothing bad can come from on high and in the end everything is good. Sweet means we can actually appreciate the nature of that goodness. Much like something that physically, materially tastes sweet to the palate. So thank you Ian and Sarah. And the second little announcement is that this sixth episode is going to conclude the first part of our sound FX series. Now, the special effects of the shofar and the secrets of the Balshemtiv are actually articulated and developed here in this mimer in the course of at least 10 major points. 10 major ideas are introduced and developed before we get to the crowning climax of this extraordinary Hasidic discourse, this manuscript of the Mittler Rebbe. It's a mimer, a teaching, a discourse, a rumination of the Alter Rebbe, the founder of the Chabad movement, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Leidi, whose birthday is today, Chai Elul, and it distills the chauffeur secrets of the Baal Shem Tov, whose birthday is also today on Chai Elul. We have, over the past five episodes, tried to develop a solid basis and understanding of the first point. I'm not kidding. The first point of the Mimer. In view of the limitations that we have of time, but Ezrat Hashem, in the next week, we're going to kind of skip to the end of the Mimer, and we'll study its crowning conclusion, its climax together. And perhaps at some future time, we'll come back to the earlier points and slowly but surely fill in the missing gaps until we have this Mimer in its entirety. But in order for you to have a most meaningful Rosh Hashanah this year, I'm going to conclude 
to try and elaborate and explain point one of the Mimer, which will deal with really the simple sound, the unbroken sound, the tekiah, the cry of the shofar. And then we'll head to the very end and we'll talk about the broken sound, the shvarim and the trua. And whilst it's not a complete thesis, my hope is that it'll give you enough information to transform your shofar listening experience, your Rosh Hashanah, in a rich and rewarding way. So with those little announcements, let's get right back into it. We've been talking. Oh, I know, we're talking a lot. And I've, I'm trying my best to share things which are very deep, very profound, extremely meaningful, but not easy, not simple at all. Sometimes people say, um, you know, can't you boil this down into a couple of simple salient points? And the simple answer is, actually, no. No, this can't be boiled down to a few simple points because if you boil this down to a few simple points, you actually miss the point altogether. I'm reminded of a, a humorous story about the village or town of Chelm or Chelmo in Poland. Now, the truth is that the Chelm people were quite intelligent. And as a rule, many, many scholars, Talmud Chachamim, came from the city of Chelm. But somehow, just like in Canada, people make fun of the citizenry of Newfoundland. They call them Newfies. I don't know why. People made fun of the Chelmites. I never really figured out who popularized Chelm as a city of fools, but Maybe it was jealousy of surrounding towns. I don't know. There are books printed about the silly tales of the wise men of Chelm. And there's this Chelm story about an impoverished fellow who sees the wealthy man in town eating blintzes. <laughs> you know what blintzes are, right? Those crepes. Eat eggs and sugar and flour and milk and probably a whole lot of other additives and then the proper filling, which requires a particular kind of cheese, probably what we call today farmer's cheese. And everything has to be made, you know, and so you can enjoy a blitzer. That's the Shavuot dairy delicacy that so many of you are familiar with. Anyway, this fellow comes home and he says, you know, he says to his wife, you never make me blintzes. And she says, listen, honey, we can't afford it. We can't afford, we can't afford blintzes. So what do you mean we can't afford it? What can we afford? He says, there's a lot of additions, his wise wife says. Well, a lot of ingredients. And she goes through the whole list of them. And she says, out of the whole ingredients, I only have maybe three that I could muster, that I could manage to put together. He says, well, I want blintzes. Make me blintzes with whatever you have. So taking a little bit of oil and flour and cheese, she tries to create a blintzer. And he sits down and he eats this motley mess. And he says... You know, darling, I don't know why they make such a big deal out of blintzes. It doesn't taste very good. Well, of course not. If you leave out all the ingredients, it's not going to taste like anything. To try to simplify things that are inherently profound and deep is like making a delicacy without the ingredients. It's just not possible. So, I'm begging for your indulgence. 
Let's work on this. Let's try to understand this together. Because if we take the time to grasp the ideas and then afterwards to ruminate on them and really seriously contemplate and think about the ideas we learned, we have a guarantee that when it percolates in the mind, it'll filter through into the heart. And we'll have a Rosh Hashanah that's radically different. A Rosh Hashanah that's elevated mindfully, stimulated emotionally, and as such, fully on fire spiritually. And that's really what this is about. So, so today's Chayel, as mentioned, and it's the birth date of the Baal Shem Tov. It's also the day, 24 years later, that an angel named Achia Hashiloni, who was once a person, but then assumed an angelic form, like Elijah, revealed himself to the Baal Shem Tov. Don't ask me what that means. Angels don't reveal themselves to me, and I've never been down a wormhole, but there's something like that. We believe it. The Baal Shem Tov was not a jokester. And if he says a malach taught him Torah, <laughs> then a malach taught him Torah. If he revealed the mystical secrets we call Hasidus today, you can bet your bottom dollar. Hasidus comes from a higher place. Ten years after that, Achia Hashiloni instructs the Baal Shem Tov to reveal the mystical teachings that he has been able to apprehend with whoever will listen. And thus begins the launch of the Hasidic movement. And then a little more than a decade later, the Alter Rebbe is born. And on his third birthday, he sees the Baal Shem Tev just once and never again. And he eventually becomes a disciple of the Baal Shem Tev's successor, the Magad of Mizrich. And the rest, as they say, is history. So what was the point of Hasidus? The Rebbe, once quoting the previous Rebbe, said that the Baal Shem Tev fashioned the latter. The Alter Rebbe taught us how to use it. Now, a ladder is a, a simple mechanism that enables us to get to the next level. So before the days where stairs were commonplace, if you had a loft or the next level, you'd need a ladder to get there. But if you never saw a ladder before and you didn't know how to ascend one, it probably wouldn't be very useful. The Baal Shem Tev forges the ladder. He creates the vehicle, the mechanism, the, the convention through which we can ascend to the next level. The Alter Rebbe distills those teachings into a practical path to follow, instructing and thereby enabling each and every one of us to ascend that ladder. In the opening of his magnum opus, the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe tells us that the way is not easy. It's not short. It's a derech arucha. It's a long way. But it's arucha uktsara. It's the long, short way because drawing on a parable which appears in the Talmud, you could have a short geographic distance to traverse, but then you come up against impossible obstacles. Like this man who wanted to know which is the quickest way into the city. And the brilliant little boy says, well, this is the short but very long way. And that's the long but short way. 
Stop speaking in riddles, said the man. Which is shortest? They said, well, this is a kilometer, and that's 10 kilometers. The man snorts and heads off on the road that's purported to be just 10 kilometers from the city, except that after a very short time, the pavement came to an end, and he had to navigate his ways over thorns, thistles, boulders, and enormous gaps in the terrain. And when he finally did get to the city, he came up against a tall, impenetrable wall. Having to retrace his steps with stubbed feet, he now follows the other road. Oh, it's much longer. It's well paved. It leads straight through the city gates. My dear friends, the way of Hasidus Chabad, which is the Torah of the Baal Shem Tev, as is richly illustrated in the opening pages of the Rebbe's Hayom Yom, this is a long way. It's not a short way. And no, I can't cram these teachings into a few sentences. I can't give you a, a few jingles that'll open the doors for you. But if you stay with me on this road, together we can get to the city gates. What are the city gates? What's the destination? What's the end game? As the Alter Rebbe writes in the Sharblat, the opening page of Tanya, this is all about fulfilling the verse, Kikore Velecha Hadavar Mo'ed. This uh, Judaism thing is exceedingly close. It's extremely possible. Beficha, in your medium of speech or communication, Uvilvavcha, emotionally. Bilvavcha could also mean cerebrally or consciously. And of course, last say, say, to do it. Now, you can tell people to do just about anything, and they can choose to do it. But their heart is not going to be in it. You can tell people to say just about anything. The question is, will it be a sincere expression, a real communication? Or will they just be repeating somebody else's words? Moshe Rabbeinu, on the last day of his terrestrial life, told us that Hashem expects us to serve Him not only in deed or even in speech, but also in heart, and that all of these were equally important and equally within reach. And perhaps there was a time when, when people had a natural sense or organic ability to connect to the deeper rhythm of Judaism. The lights were on and people could see things with clarity. But as time wore on and we're further away from mass revelation, we reached a point of such thick, acrid smoke and darkness that it's impossible for us really to see at all. We're in a total fog. How then? How then can you serve Hashem with passion, with emotion, with fervor? Emotion doesn't mean to make yourself joyous or happy, to pretend to be enthusiastic. It means to really be into it. 
I don't know what your favorite food is, but it doesn't matter. Do me a favor. Think of, think of your favorite food and think of being hungry. So if I put you together with your favorite food when you're hungry, how do you eat? The simple answer is with, with great gusto. You don't have to force yourself to eat. You don't have to say, well, this is really difficult, but it's, well, it's the will of Hashem. And if I don't eat, I'll die. I really want to die, but I really, you know, I have to eat, so I'm going to force myself to eat. If that's the circumstances you're in, it's a good chance you have a serious illness and you got to get that looked into. For most people, eating comes naturally. Having fun or experiencing pleasure comes naturally. If you're just a normal, balanced person, and, and you meet your children after not having seen them for an extended period of time, you don't have to be told to get excited. If your spouse says, look happy, your kids just came home from camp, and you aren't actually happy to see your children, something's wrong. If you're a person who doesn't melt at the sight of his or her grandchildren, something doesn't add up. Those are natural emotions. That enthusiasm isn't an act or a show, well, guess what? Your enthusiasm for Yiddishkeit is supposed to be sincere as well. You're supposed to be sincerely excited that we're in the month of Elul. You're supposed to actually be anticipating and looking forward to Rosh Hashanah with a sense of awe, a sense of amazement and wonderment. You're supposed to be engaged in the shofar blowing, in the solemn, nature of the moment, along with a sense of deep gratitude, even joy, that you're able to do this. Imagine trying to tell a bride or groom coming under their chuppah, excited to be marrying the love of their life, you should uh, feel special now. Well, Dad, you know, I can't really feel special now. You sure? Yeah, yeah, you really should. You think about it, it's a big deal, you're getting married, you should feel special now. That's, that's ridiculous. Who wouldn't feel special? My friends, that's how we're supposed to feel about a Yom Tov. That's how we're supposed to feel about the performance of a mitzvah. And as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, that's neged hachush. It goes against our nature. Ah, but... <laughs> But nature was created by God for us to engineer it. If we would naturally be as excited to study Torah as we were to eat food we deem delicious, we wouldn't get any credit for studying Torah. If it was as much fun to listen to a Torah class as it was to be watching an entertaining movie, you wouldn't get any credit for staying with me now online. But but you are, and you're choosing to study Torah, and it's not that entertaining or that much fun. But you have a sense that this can actually lead you into a deeper appreciation of the things that life is really made of, the things that life's experiences are actually supposed to be comprised of. <laughs> I said this a couple of days ago, but. Do you think anybody on their deathbed has ever expressed regret at not watching more movies, eating 
more ice cream or having more fun? No, never happened. I attended far too many of these. If people have the wherewithal to express regret, it's the regret for less spiritual pursuit. It's the regret for not having spent more time with family. It's the regret for the things that life is really made of. Guess what? Bilam, the evil, wicked prophet, he wanted to die as a Jew. He said, Thomas Nafshi, Moishi I hope I die righteous. That's not a good thing. <laughs> Anybody can die righteously. The challenge is to live righteously. I want to tell you today that if you take the time to learn, to study, to contemplate, to ingest the truth, the Torah truth called Hasidus, you will change. It will stimulate something from within and you'll become emotionally engaged and involved. Try it with the series. Go back and watch the previous episodes. Listen carefully. Think about what we learned. Stay with us next week. And then tell me if it doesn't make a difference when you stand on show at that moment and participate in the sounding or listening to the sound of the shofar. So Hasidus, as the Alter Rebbe developed it, uses the mind as the portal into the heart, and from the heart, action, real-time engagement is engendered. Now a final little point. In order for things to be meaningful, in order for us to get excited about things, in order for us to be engaged and involved in things, we have to, we have, to have a perspective on it. And that comes through study, comes through developing an awareness and an appreciation and a taste for something. Is it true though? Or is it just my own imaginary reality? In other words, when you actually feel something, when you're actually engaged in the Yiddishkeit experience, who says that's for real? That's a really good question. Think about this. You may have heard the name Viktor Frankl. He was a student of Sigmund Freud, but he sharply disagreed with him. Viktor Frankl ultimately spawned a new school of psychology. It's called logotherapy. And his primary thesis, which is contained in the first half of a book he called Man's Search for Meaning, he illustrates a thesis, a, a perspective on life that is very different from Maslow's hierarchy of needs. He suggests that meaning in life, spiritual fulfillment, things like the arts or having your dreams fulfilled, you know, the kind of things that are pastimes, hobbies, 
not needs, not the necessities of life, are actually most necessary. Abraham Maslow is a, an American psychologist and a follower of Freudian psychology. He very logically kind of sketched out this hierarchy of needs. He says we all need, we have biological needs. If you have no air, you're going to exviate and die. If you have air but no hydration, well, you'll last a little longer, but you can't continue to go on without hydration. And whilst you can last without food for a couple of days, you need nourishment too. Invariably, the inclement weather necessitates shelter. And then there's bad people out there. You need to be secure, protected. And that's how he slowly but surely builds this pyramid. And the cherry on the top, the climax, is what he calls self-actualization. Meaning in life. He says you can live without meaning. You can't live without food. You can live without passion. You can't live without hydration. You can live without a pastime. You can't live without basic needs. But Viktor Frankl charts a very different path in man's search for meaning. He, in a concentration camp, watched carefully and mentally documented the way different people dealt with the extraordinarily horrible circumstances they found themselves in. There were stronger people who died and weaker people who lived. And it wasn't because they had better shelter or more food or hydration. It became clear to him that people who had a will to live, people who were stimulated with a sense of meaning, were able to live and flourish, or at least survive. Whereas people who had no meaning in life, no reason to live, simply collapsed and gave in to death. His idea is that the reason that people are so miserable today is not because they don't have basic needs. They don't have meaning. We are living in an age of plenty, such of which this planet has probably never seen before. We're also living in the highest level of young people committing suicide, at least since we started keeping records. Why? They have food, they have shelter, they have clothes, and they have lots of toys and things that should bring them happiness. Why did several celebrities choose to check out? We live in a world that's devoid of meaning. And here, my friends, I want to hone in on perhaps the most important point of today's lecture and really the whole series. So Viktor Frankl kept himself alive through the horrors of the Holocaust. What kept him alive was the anticipation of meeting his wife again. Unfortunately, that anticipation was never fulfilled. After the war, he discovered that she had been murdered. And in his own admission, after freedom or liberation, having been robbed of the meaning he created for himself, was even harder than the awful deprivation he experienced prior. Why? 
Well, because he had created a meaning for himself. He lived for a purpose, but that was a purpose he induced. It was a purpose he created. It was, in fact, not true because she was no longer alive. But he didn't know that. So he lived with this imaginary meaning, and when the imaginary meaning suddenly became a mirage that was unattainable, he collapsed. You could argue that everything I'm saying is mumbo-jumbo. You could argue that. You could argue that these are just words, just ideas. Who says they're true? Who says they're real? Yes, of course, if you'll think about everything we learned today and then enter the shul or listen to the shofar with this in mind, of course it'll be a meaningful experience because, because you chose to make it meaningful. But that's not correct. Because when we are learning Hasidus from the masters of Hasidus, we're learning from people who actually had the lights on, from people who actually experienced these things. Rabbi Seinu Nesienu, our Rebbe's and the great Sadikim, who taught us the sources of this teaching were people who experienced it. That's what we believe as Hasidim. That's what we believe as Torah Jews. So, so how does that talk to us? Because I'm not a holy man. I can't enter the wormhole to get to the other side. I'm not capable of higher consciousness. And in all likelihood, you probably aren't either. Ah, this was the wonderful innovation of the Baal Shem Tev. The Baal Shem Tev's teachings, especially as they are elucidated, developed, and presented by the Alter Rebbe, find a series of sophisticated metaphor through which we can have an understanding of truisms that we can't experience. We'll never really know this. We'll never really see it until Mashiach comes. But it's still the truth. And because it's the truth, and because we're learning about the truth, and because inside we have an neshama, it resonates with us. And that's why it's meaningful for us. That's why it stirs us. It's why it actually enables us to link up with our spiritual iCloud. It's why we're able to find these ideas resonating for us because they're true and because there's a part of us that knows that. This is similar to something I talked about, quoting a mimer from the Alta Rebbe, I think in the first episode of this series. So, with no further ado, let's talk about the chauffeur. Let's talk about what is the chauffeur blowing? I know what it is halachically. I look in the Shulchan Aruch, I know what a shofar is. It's a ram's horn. According to Rambam, according to other Rishonim, it's a horn any, from any kosher animal. And it should ideally be bent, representing a certain subservience, humility. And, and um, it has to be organic, not man-made. Can't be a fake shofar, a real shofar. And there are all kinds of details. What if the chauffeur has a crack? What if it has a hole? What if it's got glue holding it together? Can it have other materials that are adhering to the surface? Can you listen to the chauffeur or hear its electronic sounds or you have to hear the original chauffeur? Is an echo of the chauffeur good enough? These are all 
really good questions. We know exactly what the shofar is. Halachli, that's already been richly documented. The question, though, is, on a spiritual level, what does the shofar really mean? Why does God want us to blow a shofar? Or how are we supposed to be viewing or feeling it? Well, in order to answer that question, the Alter Rebbe employed a sophisticated series of metaphor. The most recent metaphor we've been talking about is called Mimutza. Mimutza is the nexus, or facilitating force. It's kind of the in-between where there's a full transition from one reality to the next. And that has a lot to do with the chauffeur. Okay, I refer you to <laughs> the previous five episodes. We've done a lot of talking and thinking about this. Today, I'd like to revisit the Mimutza metaphor and then we'll move forward to explore the voice of the heart. So, if you're talking to people who can't see, it's very difficult to describe what you and I see. If you're talking to people who see, or people who don't see clearly but you see clearly, you can illustrate or point out the details. You can sketch the details. You can fill in the missing spaces. When you hear of a Kabbalist, what do you think of? Most people tend to think of a, a person who, who is uh, somewhat clairvoyant, a person who is able to see what others cannot. They're not wrong. If being a Kabbalist means having an understanding of Kabbalah, I guess I can be a Kabbalist too. I have a rudimentary understanding of Kabbalah knowledge, maybe more than a rudimentary understanding. I can read many, I've read many books of Kabbalah. I can read and make sense out of it. I'm not a Kabbalist. <laughs> not by a long shot. Invariably, real Kabbalists are extremely holy people. Extremely dedicated and subservient people. People who have in some way transcended earthly or terrestrial limitations. Think of somebody who's broken the atmosphere and now is orbiting in weightlessness. That perhaps is an apt metaphor for a real tzaddik real Kabbalist who's literally orbiting in a different zone, aware of things that ordinary people are not. All right, so if we're not going to become Kabbalists, and we're not going to actually experience these things, what's the point? And the answer is that it's possible to explain to people who are entirely seeing impaired. It's possible to describe something to them. It gets, of course, much more difficult when these are people who are born blind, who have never seen color, who don't have any frame of reference to draw upon. But you can still give them the basic outlay of the structure so that they can effectively appreciate where they find themselves and navigate their way. Well, that's us. The Rabbeim had night vision goggles. They could see this. The greatest of Rabbeim saw it with clarity. Smaller tzaddikim could see things, but not clearly. For some, it was like broad daylight. For others, it was the darkest night 
with nothing but night vision goggles would give you just silhouettes, but they could see something. They were aware of something, whereas you and I are not. But what we can do is use metaphor of a different reality to try and appreciate and understand. And when we do this, when we do this in a, in a real fashion, in a, in a sincere fashion, taking the time to try to grasp things which are somewhat beyond our grasp, it becomes a reality. We can see it, if only in our mind's eye. We can visualize it, perhaps not in color or even in black and white everyday vision, but we can see it. It, it makes sense to us. You know, it's like you're explaining something to somebody and they go, ah, I see what you're saying. Oh, you see? Yeah, what color is it? What, what, what's the shape? Like you explain how to solve a particular mathematical problem. You say, ah, I see. Now I see it. What do you see? You're studying quantum physics. I see what you're saying. Do you see the quantum physics? Now, we can actually draw pictures of quantum physics today, although it's so microscopic because we have the technology to enlarge things a thousand times, a hundred thousand times, to the point where we can actually see what an atom looks like. We can draw a picture of a coronavirus. But even if you never saw a coronavirus, or even if you never saw a germ, or you never saw an atom under a microscope, you can still get it to some degree. It sounds a little academic. It sounds a little far out when you talk about quantum theory and you talk about all this empty space which looks like dense reality but actually is actually filled with emptiness because every atom is mostly empty but it's a dude like <laughs> I'm touching the paper this is not emptiness so in quantum theory which we know scientifically to be true we can we can grasp it on a degree or to a degree on a level nobody's ever seen dark matter, it's actually a theory. Antimatter is a theory. There's even a theory that's something called extraordinary matter. None of these things could ever be seen, at least not in our present state of technological development. The closest we've ever come to seeing dark matter is like light, a whirlpool of light that was seen two years ago, in a, in, I think through the Hubble telescope, like, like, like a drain, you know, like the light draining and disappearing into something black, something dark. So we can understand what, what antimatter is. We can understand the equation, even if we didn't experience it. We don't have to see a wormhole to imagine that one could actually travel through space in a quicker way. Nobody's ever done it. Stephen Hawkins believed that if a wormhole could ever be identified, it could enable spatial travel, but not time travel. Nobody really knows the answer to those questions. We've never actually visualized it. We don't have the ability to see it. It's, it's a different realm of physics. It's beyond the laws of physics that we live within. But we can understand these things to the point that they become a reality to us. If somebody tells you that ah, black holes and, and wormholes, that's like you know, Disneyland. It's magic. That's, that's baloney. You would say, well, I beg to differ. Ah, quantum theory. Ma narishkeit, mumbo jumbo. Who could, did you ever see it? 
What are you, joking? Germs? Who ever saw germs? You don't see the germs. They're like you relate to the concept that there could be germs somewhere because somebody saw it under a microscope? Only? That helps that you can see a picture of it. But for the most part, you have clarity because it makes sense to you. And as I mentioned in our, one of the previous episodes, the problem with the things we're talking about now is we don't have any metaphor for it. We have metaphor for, for quantum theory. We can actually illustrate certain things. You can show light bending. You can actually do it. There are experiments you can do when you can see these kinds of things, these kinds of phenomena, despite the fact that we're limited by a particular set of the laws of physics. We're talking about the spiritual reality. We don't know what this is. As the Rebbe once said, was is Ruchnius keinevesisht? What is Ruchnius? What, what does it mean? Spiritual reality. What is spiritual matter? We don't know. We don't know what it means. You have to experience it to know. When Mashiach comes, you'll find out what it means. When the Jewish people stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and experienced mass revelation, and God proverbially tore open the heavens and the earth, He basically suspended the laws of physics. And He destroyed the quantum physics or the quantum theory of our present atomic reality. And we saw spirituality. And of course, I don't know what that means because I, I don't remember. <laughs> We're all there, but I, we have no active recollection of it. Although we all have some deep pre, pre or subconscious memory of it. So we talked about a mamutza. And, and the whole theorem we've been developing is about a mamutza, about an in-between state. We talked about a raw, guttural sound, which leads or allows for speech to be articulated, but isn't really a syllable or a letter. And we said, we talked about how it gets expressed in like, in like a simple letter or pronunciation because that's the vehicle through which the sound is communicated. And we started to introduce the idea of mimutza and one of the metaphors we use for mimutza, mimutza is a, a go-between, a facilitator that isn't simply a reality that can bridge two things because it's not about bridging or mediating between two diverse forces. It's about one engendering the next by virtue of a mamutza. And none of the examples we gave actually allows for the creation of a new reality. All of the things we talked about are within the realm of our laws of physics. So the only kind of terminology we could have as a metaphor is nefesh adam our psyche, not, not our psychoschematic, not the way it relates to the physical, but the spiritual psyche, the non-tangible, the theoretical, psychological makeup of a person. And within the psychological makeup of a person, we can identify intellect and we can identify emotion. And emotion and intellect are very different from one another. They're not different in a quantum physics sense, but then again, quantum physics has got nothing on intellect or emotion. They're not different. They don't have different colors or different tastes or different shapes or sizes, but they are inherently different. We can understand that there's a difference between the objective cerebral reality and the subjective emotional reality. And the mimutza, this in-between, this go-between, this transitional force allows one to filter through into the other. 
The example that we gave in a previous episode was Keter, the crown that lies upon the head of the Kabbalistic man. And that the Keser is made, we said, of two sections. Atik Yoimin, and Atik Yoimin literally translates as ancient days or like a memory from somewhere else, which in our world is called pleasure. And then there's something called Arich Ampin, or a lot of who I really am or what I really want, also known as willpower. So we said that the willpower that a person has is able to motivate. It's able to galvanize a person to do all kinds of things. If I want to understand, I can understand things. If I want to empathize and feel it, if I really want to, I will. If I want to do it, if I really want to, where there's a will, there's a way. So ratzon, or will, is not a thought, an action. It's not coordination or digestion, it's something which doesn't limit itself to a particular organ or part of the body. When a person really wants something, whether it's a gastronomic experience or to discover a secret, we don't say my brain wants or my stomach wants. I want. All of me wants. All of me wants this particular experience, which comes to me through my palate or my stomach or through my mind or my ears. So, Arech Ampin, we said, is like kind of, an, it's like the details of a person. And Atik Yoimin, that comes from a higher place. That's the source of pleasure which none of us really know or understand why we work this way. And that's called Mimutza. That's what we talked about. Now, before we go further in the Alter Rebbe's Mimer, so I want to share with you a, a teaching. This is a teaching which initially begins to be elaborated on in some of the Middle Rebbe's writings. It really uh, is fully developed by the fifth Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab. And I'm going to share with you a snippet of, of a Mimer, that, a Hasidic discourse that our Rebbe delivered on the second day of Rosh Hashanah in 1960. So in this discourse, he touches on the idea of mimutza, the go-between. And the Rebbe references our mimer. He says, you know, we have this mimer in the Sharat Kiyas, which is to understand Kiyat Shofar according to the intentions of the Baal Shem Tev. And over there it says that the letter Aleph is a mimutza. Aleph is a mimutza. We talked about this in the second part, and the third part, uh, third episode of this series. Aleph is a mimutza. And it's the mamutza between koil, between sound, and between dibur, between communication or articulation. Shahakoil nimshach mehevel halev, the voice comes from the proverbial breath of the heart, or the force of the heart, which we're going to talk about today, and then it filters through into communication. But it starts off as a koil pashat, and the dibur, the, the talk, is when that guttural sound that emits from a very deep place within a person is modified, restrained, harnessed, channeled, so that it sounds like specific words, and it takes on the image of sophisticated communication. And they're Beis Hafchim. Guttural sound and sophisticated communication are actually opposites, because sophisticated communication is limited. Whatever particular word you're using is made up of particular syllables or letters, and those letters cannot be confused with other letters. A kuf is not a lamed. If you confuse kuf and lamed, if you confuse aleph and bays, you're not going to have communication. 
If instead of saying Abba, which means father, I say Ba'ab, I don't have anything. What is a Ba'ab? A blob? So I got to say the right word or right letter in the right order, in the right place. Whereas a guttural cry, a cry that comes, a cry of pain or a cry of joy is, it's a cry. What do you mean? Is it a right cry? That doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound, you're not giving air to your pain. Scream a little different. Go, ah! Say, what are, you, what are you, nuts? I'm screaming. I'm in pain. I'm screaming. You don't scream that way. You scream how you want. I scream how I want. There's no rules to screaming. There's no rules to expressing pain. These are guttural. These are raw. It doesn't have a grammar or rules of, 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 of etiquette of how it's expressed. They're actually opposites from one another. One is very much orchestrated very much focused, very much in tandem with laws of grammar, diction, and pronunciation that are outside of a person, and the other disregards all of those. The only question of is, is it sincere? Or is a person just bluffing? And you can usually tell. Not because the diction or pronunciation is correct. So they're opposites from one another. Therefore, there has to be a mamutza. And what's the mamutza? So we brought this metaphor of Rav and Talmud. They have this great master, deep, deep, deep thinker. And he's got to communicate with ordinary people and they don't know what he's talking about. So he or she is going to have to find somebody that has an understanding of who they are and what they're thinking and at the same time appreciates what the ordinary people are thinking and the methodology that they use to understand or grasp things. And that person will create a medium, a bridge, so that the great thinker or teacher or mentor should be able to speak to the ordinary person on the street. The great physicists and scientists are coming up with this cutting-edge string theory and the journalist who reports for the famous paper and is the science writer knows enough to be able to understand the physicist but can write it in language that the average newspaper reader is able to read and appreciate. And depending on which newspaper, some of them are written for the average of fifth graders, some of them are written a little more sophisticated. That depends if you're talking about, uh, you know, this, I don't want to mention particular papers, get into that, but there are, it's known that there are certain papers that are written for grade school level. Because that's their readership. And you have these fancy elite papers that are not written for ordinary people and they're not as popular amongst ordinary people. They're not entertaining, as they say. They're vehicles of information. But even that is catering to a particular kind of person. A person who's not necessarily a physicist, but maybe an entrepreneur. Somebody who's educated, but isn't immersed in a specific discipline. But it's not really a good metaphor, and I'll tell you why. It's not a good metaphor because the interpreter doesn't create or engender the student. He simply passes information on. In our example, the mimutza allows for the next level to happen. So we're kind of stuck. This is not working for us. So the Rebbe goes on to say in the Maimer that the mamutza between koil and dibur, the mamutza between sound and voice, is actually different because, because the, the sound, assuming a simple sound, can then become a sophisticated sound. 
And that's the Ois Aleph. And I refer you back to the second episode of the series. So he says, even though we call the Keter, even though we call that a Memutza, the truth is that the Keter is not an apt example for Memutza. Why not? So the Rebbe says, let's talk about even the names. Even the name, Atik Yoimin. What does it mean, Atik Yoimin? Atik means like, like, like uh, 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 removed, separated. But it's the thing, it's, it's Ne'atak, it's separated from this. And even when the word Ha'ataka means to take it from one place to the next. And here we have a, an interesting example of this. Like in the book of Mishlei, in the opening of the 25th chapter of the book of Mishlei, there's a bit of a, a switcher. So Mishlei are mishalim, are metaphors that were written by or documented, conveyed by King Solomon in his wisdom. It's proverbs, metaphors, parables. And then in t- chapter 25 it says, Gam Eile Mishle Shlomo. In other words, that the following sayings, the sayings that we get introduced to in the 25th chapter of Mishle, do not differ substantively from the previous collection of Solomon's Proverbs. But there's something different about them. What's different about them? Asher he'etiku This was copied. It was copied by the people of Chizkiah, who was the king of Yehuda. What does it mean it was copied? It was copied means, according to the Mitzudot Zion, it means, Koisev Hadvarim, the person who's writing these words is actually copying them from something he heard or read. It's like copying from one thing to the next. And even if you're rephrasing an idea, you're just plagiarizing, you're just copying. It's not really creative, it's not new, it's not fresh, it's not different. Even though they retain their original profundity or source, it's It's as if it was taken from there, but it's never really taken. In other words, the name Atik, which means ancient or old, or collected or copied or moved, never really leaves its origin. The Atik remains Atik forever. Atik is Atik. So if Atik, a higher level of Keter, remains a higher level of Keter, and the lower level of Keter, which is called Arach, which represents the idea of of will, but the will never attaches itself to a particular part of the body. And as such, the Rebbe says, the idea of arich is never really connected to the specific details. What kind of memutza is it? It's not a memutza. It's, it's a memutza. It's a go-between in the sense that it can be a bridge. But we're looking here for something that can actually create the transition. Something that can actually create the next level. It's an in-between, a go-between that can lead to the next level. And so, the Rebbe says the real metaphor for this is something called Chachmastima. Chachmastima means the hidden recesses of wisdom. And he says the hidden recesses of wisdom are the go-between. Between pre-consciousness and active thought. And here we go for a paradigm. The paradigm is the koyach the power to think. So the power to think is not a thought. Because the power, the ability to 
into it. The ability to come up with an idea, to grasp an idea, has to be amorphous. It has to be colorless. It can't have a specific frame or set of laws that it operates within. Otherwise, it will only be able to understand what's within its frame, what, it, what it's framed by. But if we talk about the most organic level of intellectuality, we're not talking about actual thought or understanding or even concept at all. It's just the potential to be able to think. It's mushlul mikol mini mitzias shebeseichel. It cannot have a specific frame. It cannot be a specific expression. It's called harehu koyach hiyuli shel It's potentially intelligent. Potential intelligence is not intelligence. A person might be vexed by a particular problem. They say, I think I have a potential solution. What's the solution, you say? The guy says, I don't know yet. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Something is clicking. Something's making sense. I, can't, I don't know yet. I have to figure I have to get this. In other words, it, it, the idea is born. And when it's first born, it doesn't even have length and breadth. It doesn't have character yet. It hasn't been expressed or developed. Anything which already exists on some level is no longer potential. It's not the potential for something. It is the thing. But this is only a potential. However, at the same time, it's potential intelligence. It's not potential emotion. It's not potential chocolate cake. It's potential ideas, the potential of thinking. The possibility of all possibilities in the realm of the intelligence. Not all possibilities in the realm of the emotions. Or the taste, or visually, or audible. It's not that kind of reality. So, this kayachiyuli is actually mushlal. It's what we call removed from any kind of actuality. What, is it, what does it mean? So, the... The Rebbe um, Rashab, the fifth Rebbe, in the famous Hemshech of Tafresh Samachvav, a series of memorandum delivered beginning in Rosh Hashanah in 1905. So, in, in, um, early on in this, in this uh, incredible series, which is called, you know, Yom Tov Shirash Hashanah Samachvav, he speaks about the idea of Koyachiyuli. And he says that we're talking about something that exists behelem, in a latent state, not an actual state. It's Einebebechina's gvul v'shir. It has no limitation. It has no actual expression. What's the example for this? So, the Rebbe Rashab says one of the examples for this is you have fire, energy, which can be doused, which can be extinguished, and then you have the flint stone from which fire can be brought forth. Now, the Flintstone is very specific. It's the potential that allows you to bring forth fire. It can't bring forth water, for example. It can only bring forth fire. But at the same time, if you take that Flintstone, if you take what he calls if you take the Tzur HaChalamish and you immerse it in water for centuries, once you dry it off, the Tzur HaChalamish, the Flintstone, can once again be used. You can take or you can extrapolate, you can draw forth fire. Even though it contains within it sparks which can actually be nurtured into a fire, at the same time, there is no fire there. There is no actual fire at all. 
even the proverbial warmth of a flintstone. And sometimes these stones can fee, feel somewhat warm. It's behelim vidakas. It's very, very refined. It's very refined. There's an energy. You know, quartz has a heartbeat. But the naked eye doesn't see it. And the hand can't necessarily feel it. Eine cham b'murgash cloths, not a heat that you can actually touch or feel in a literal way. It's only when we strike iron or steel on it, then, and he uses the word ruchni, but it's not really spiritual, it's just totally not material. This non-material form of fire can come out. But if you have a flame which is attached to a smoldering coal, so even if the coal is smoldering, even if when you look at the outside and the surface of the coal, you don't see actual flames, you can't see actual fire. What's, the, what's, what's the, the point? The point is, it's in a latent state. If you pick up that coal, you'll feel it. Oh, <laughs> you feel it. If you blow on the coal, you'll easily, it will suddenly glow bright. You'll see the energy of the fire within it. It doesn't take a lot of work. But the Tzorah Chalomesh, he says, You have to put tremendous effort to get that fire. You have to strike it with great force. Yeah, but if you strike wood with great force, you're not going to get a fire. But the flame, or the flame inside the coal, is easily revealed. It's limited. Because it's an actual fire. Therefore, it can be extinguished. Whereas the potential is something that goes on forever. You know, scientists imagine that the, the first human experience with fire probably came from glowing embers from a natural fire. They, they assume that maybe there was a lightning or, or a volcanic eruption. But Torah tradition tells us otherwise. Torah tradition, which incidentally picks its narrative up just before the Stone Age, tells us about Adam and Chava being given the intuition that when they struck certain rocks, suddenly sparks flew and they could get a fire out of it. When did that happen? It happened on the night of the eighth day of creation. The first Matzah Shabbos, Saturday night. It got dark for the first time. Because during the six days of creation, there was no physical darkness as we know it. There was no real absence of light. And during the first Shabbat, planet Earth remained bathed in an unnatural glow. But Shabbat ended. And darkness descended. And Adam was terrified. He had never experienced darkness. And Adam and Chava were given intuition. And they found a rock and they struck the rock. And what happened is, what happened is sparks came forth and they were able to nurse a fire from that. Well, in the scientific view, sometime during the Stone Age, upon fashioning tools out of stone, our ancestors noted that striking certain rocks against each other produced sparks. Now, of course, <laughs> this is just postulation. Nobody is giving you an eyewitness report. You know, we're scientifically trying to imagine how did this happen? Okay, we have a Torah narrative. But even science comes up with the same conclusion. Somebody struck rock. Flint, and I'm quoting, is a variety of quartz composed mainly of silicon dioxide. 
that can sport a variety of colors due to the inclusion of other minerals and is almost as hard as diamond. Striking flint against an iron-containing rock, such as pyrites, will make sparks fly. There are glowing bits of iron, pardon me, these are glowing bits of iron that can start a fire on contact with easily combustible materials. This technology gets improved during the Iron Age, which, by the way, the relics found of the Iron Age perfectly match the biblical narrative of when ironworks began. We have an actual father of weapons or iron who is mentioned in the Torah. And this happened when the heating of iron ore and charcoal yielded metallic iron, which created steel. And then the sparks were produced more readily when the steel was struck against the flint. And until the introduction of matches in the 19th century, the use of flintstones was the most common way to spark a fire. People carried tinderboxes that held a flint, a piece of steel, and some dry matter such as scorched cloth or dried fungus and a wooden splint tipped with sulfur. What a little experience. Striking the flint with the steel and blowing the sparks onto the timber produced a flame that would ignite the splint which was used to light a candle or kerosene. There you have it. That, that says Hasidus, that is an apt metaphor for the Mimutza. Because in truth, if it contains any kind of actual fire, which are electrons brought forth, separated from their source, once electrons are released, then they're already limited to fire. It's not potential fire, it's fire. Potential fire is the flint that has little bits of iron in it from which fire can be brought forth. But it's not actually fire at all. It only has the potential to bring forth fire. As mentioned, if you strike the flintstone, and I get in the water. But at the same time, it's a fire that doesn't exist. That's a mamutza. So now we understand what this is about. A mamutza really and truly is a mechanism that at once contains something of what is about to be created, but none of it's actually been brought forth. It contains it potentially, not actually. So it can relate to the actuation which is engendered or emerges, but because it isn't a specific actual expression, it can also receive from or relate to a higher potential reality. Okay, by the way, Hashem brings the world into existence by virtue of speech. God's speech creates quantum physics reality that what we call in the physical sense. What then was, if you will, the Mamutza? Where did it begin? Well, there had to be something in between, something which had the potential for the world but wasn't actually a created entity or existence. And because it wasn't an actual entity or existence, outside of divinity, it's able to be a recipient of divine energy. 
But once it receives that divine energy, it's actually able to transmute it into something that is an independent entity because it contains the potential for actuality or existence outside of the overwhelming presence of God. And that brings us back to the chauffeur. So the chauffeur becomes the mamutsa mechanism between something very deep and between actual creation. Every year in Rosh Hashanah, our lease expires. God, if you will, so to speak, withdraws. We need to stimulate creation anew. And we do so by sounding the shofar, which is the mamutza in actual physical expression. Something in our world which serves as a vehicle, as a, an envelope to bring forth in a higher and deeper truth or reality the mamutza, which brings the divine speech, which in turn brings forth a new lease on life, a renewed world, the new reality for the next year. And every year this happens. And it's through the Jewish people sounding the shofar that that creates the proverbial mimutza, or the point of diffusion for God's speech to be reanimated or activated. To have a better understanding of this extremely, extremely mystical and spiritual concept, the Alta Rebbe now moves into the voice of the heart. Before we go into the voice of the heart, I just want to share with you a few quick words from a mimer of the Rebbe Rashab that was delivered on Rosh Hashanah 1917. Think about that. The world is on fire, especially in communist Russia. The Rebbe Rashab is teaching the deepest ideas of Hasidus. Because that's what reality is truly about. So the Ois Aleph Remember the Aleph? Not the spelled Aleph. The A or A, which is in the chauffeur sound. That's the Mamutsa. That's where, so to speak, there's a wormhole. That's where there's a tunnel, a funnel. That's where there's a connection between creator and creation. As it says in the Kavonah Satkias of the Baal Shem Tov. That's our mimer. Sha'akoyl hu koyl pashut. The sound of the shofar is artless and unlettered. The shofar doesn't speak to you. It can't speak. It's not possible for the shofar to, so to speak, mouth words. No shofar can ever issue articulate speech, it's the world's oldest wind instrument. Because speech is havaris michulakis. Speech involves enunciation, diction, pronunciation, a specific harnessing, and a, a, a specific expression of sound. Shofar can't do that. We need a middle ground a facilitator, 
an enabler. And that enabler has to be called me base. And that's what this mamutza is about. And the Rebbe Shah goes on to very richly develop this idea. And he says that we're really talking about the Koyach HaMaskil Shebenefesh. Because the potential for intellectuality is not actually smart. It's not a specific wisdom. It's just a Koyach Yuli. It's a potential for wisdom. It can't be wisdom because any wisdom is framed within a particular frame of its field of endeavor. But this is something which is much more in essential and intrinsic, but it can only yield or lead you to intelligence. That's what its potential is for. A koyachayuli, says the Rebbe Rashab, a potential when something is in a latent or potential state, it's mushlo mikolagiluyim. That necessarily means it isn't already articulated or expressed because once it's articulated, you can't put it back into the box. It's already left the barn. It has already a specific form. It's no longer potential. Now it's been actualized. And that is represented by the Aleph. As we said several episodes ago, because the Aleph has a Yud on the top and a Yud on the bottom and something in between, and it represents that wormhole, if you will, where there's a transition, where things go from one level or from one reality to the next. So the Rebbe Rashab now, now illustrates how this truth is expressed to us not only in the transition of objective intellect to subjective emotion, but it actually, which is not seen in this world and we can't activate it anyway. It happens all the time, but it's an intangible. There's a moment, theoretically in time, where we transition from pure intellect into bias or opinion, but it's very hard to put your finger on that. We can illustrate it only in a conceptual way. But when it comes to actually stimulating a feeling, a mida, so say, I'm, I have a mida. I've thought about this and I've developed a, a, a clear understanding. And when I developed a clear understanding of this incredible spiritual concept, it woke something up within me. And now I have a raging excitement and a tremendous enthusiasm. And I want to scream. I want to express it. So I'm making noise. And it's going, min hamidais, la'isiyas hadibur. You know, we all have a need to communicate. We have a need to, to share our feelings sometimes. We all crave that. We want to share our feelings. We desperately want to be able to, we desperately we want to be able to express ourselves. As a great American hero said before the British hung him, his name was Patrick Henry, he said, give me liberty or give me death. Freedom of expression. Something that people tremendously crave. They want to be able to talk. Imagine the torture of having sentiment but not being able to express it. I once spent a few hours with an older man who was a Talmud Chacham. A funny story how he ended up with this person. And he was sharing with me 
how when he had a stroke and he wasn't able to talk, how painful and frustrating it was, and yet at the same time, how his mind ran free, and he remembered all the things he learned as a, as a youth. And then when his speech finally started to come back to him and he could communicate, it was a tremendous relief and, and a, a tremendous joy, but he said then, the extraordinary acuity tapered off because now he was engaged and he was communicating. It's, it's a different part of us. It's a different reality, but we all crave it. When people are very excited, they want to share it with somebody. People are very upset, they want to share it with somebody. <laughs> somebody once asked me, he said, oh, what am I supposed to say when I go to a shiva house? Rahman when somebody's bereaved, somebody's grieving. I said, what are you supposed to say? Nothing. He said, what do you mean? I, I, I came to give comfort. He said, the halacha ordains that you can't even say anything, can't open your mouth until the oval is peseach. I said, the most important thing is not to say, it's to be there, to listen. I said, if anything, you can try to say things that will help the person express themselves. Sometimes people engage in a dialogue and it, it helps them express themselves. People need to express that. But from a raw emotion to articulate or sophisticated speech, there's an enormous gap. Emotions don't follow any rules of grammar. They don't sound like anything specific. They don't use mediums which are outside of them. It's how I feel. So there's a voice, but it's a voice in the heart. A voice in the heart is silent. You're screaming, but nobody hears. You're shouting, but nobody can listen because it's a voice in your heart. It's not satisfying. It's tremendously frustrating sometimes. Incidentally, there's a study done about 10 years ago that clinically proved that when people vent, which supposedly helps them get rid of their anger, what they're really doing, according to Hasidus, is creating kalim, and eventually, you, you're actually getting, making things worse when you vent. But eventually, you run out of steam. <laughs> you, you, keep, you only have so much steam, eventually you run out of steam. But they said that venting can even happen intellectually in your own mind, in your own, in your own imagination. You can vent at somebody without ever saying the words and spend all the energy venting because you're creating communication. It doesn't, somebody doesn't actually have to listen to it. But it's more satisfying when you can share it with somebody. So when Amidis la'isis hadibur, the Alter Rebbe continues that with this Maimer, Hainu mehevel halev, he calls this hevel. Hevel is like, it's like air, like mist, like, like energy. So there's an energy, there's a, there's, there's, there's a gas, there's an, a mist, there's, there's, there's something in the heart, a voice in the heart. It's a coiled pashut. The voice in the heart is a simple one. It's an unlettered, it's artless. It doesn't, it doesn't have any specific pronunciation or diction or syntax. How will a feeling turn into a poem? How will raging feelings become a passionate 
speech, articulation, or communication. There has to be a memutza. Shahu mebuchinas havodas ois echad. You have to at least get a sound out. And the sound will have to sound like a letter. You don't have to try to make it sound like a letter. You don't have to use a specific pronunciation. You just got to get a sound, emit a sound. And emitting a sound is the beginning to expression. Several days or weeks ago, I shared that when the famous Rabbi Lau, the former chief rabbi of, of, uh, of Israel, a legendary Holocaust survivor who rose to Torah greatness, was here in our community. So on Friday night, he told the story of his road to recovery. And in a, in a few words, the story was how these children all of whom were orphaned to their parents, all of whom who had experienced unimaginable horrors and pains in concentration camp, torture, suffering, loneliness, anxiety, death, unbelievable, simply mind-boggling, heart-shattering experiences. And he said he didn't cry. He's a child, an eight-year-old child, didn't cry for two years. A child who didn't cry. And they couldn't express themselves. It became like a, like a deaf mute, like, like, like he, he was a zombie, he said, just functioning. And then they, there was these philanthropists that came, I think they were somewhere in France, in a, like a DP camp or a home, and these different philanthropists came and were going to get up and, and speak about their philanthropy, and, and the, the boys were raging, they were angry. The world had abandoned them. It left them to their cruel fates, and now people were coming along and making speeches and they, they put their heads down. They refused to look at the speakers. And then he tells the story how there was, I don't remember if it was a man or a woman who had taken care of these, these children and, 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 and he or she gets up to speak and they were overwhelmed with emotion and they couldn't speak and, and all this person, he or she said, was kindelach, like in a, in a weeping voice, kinderlach. And then one of the boys started to cry. And it was like infectious. Another boy started to cry, and then a third. And the way he described it, it was like a, they were sitting outside, I think. I don't know if it was 50, 60, 100 boys with their shaven heads. And they all began to scream on top of their lungs, venting, giving ear to the pent-up pain and suffering and emotion of years. And he said that was their beginning of their return to humanity. So before they could speak about their experiences, and we know today in modern day psychology, you gotta get people to speak about their experiences. That's like a basic mechanism of therapy today. To talk it out, to speak it out, to deal with stuff, not leave it buried inside, and we're able to deal with it by articulating it first. But oftentimes, the first thing that's needed is just sobbing, just a basic cry, just a basic allowing the emotion to escape, allowing the voice from the heart to become audible. And that leads and engenders the speech that follows. It's exactly what Dalton Ebb is talking about here. It incorporates the general idea of speech because when a person is crying, weeping, wailing, screaming, shouting, yelling, 
because the speech is the last level. It's when the words, the sound is coming out, but the sound is being modified by the various mechanisms of the throat, the palate, the tongue, the teeth, and the lips. The various gates through which it has to, so to speak, escape, and the way the word is formed within the mechanism of throat, tongue, and, 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 and jaws. So that's the way the word is, comes out. So he says, so the Hevel Alev is mischalik behemet Remember, we learned about that in the beginning, those five different expressions. We said that letters like Aleph, Hey, Ches, and Ayin come from the garden, come from the throat. Let's try it again. We did this a few episodes ago. Open your mouth. Try it. Say, ah, the sound of an aleph. The sound of a hey, ha. The sound of a ches, ha. The sound of ayin. No problem. Now, try to say bays with an open mouth. Go ahead. Try. Uh, not possible. Try to say vov. You can't because vov comes from your lips. And so does mem. You have to press your lips together to say mem or pay. Pay. You need to press your lips to say pay. You can't try to open your mouth or even open your lips and say pay. You can't. So in other words, for me to say aleph, I need to be using my throat to be able to issue forth the ah sound. I need to be using my tongue for lamid because the l rolls off my tongue. And I need to have a fei which is the soft pay, at, that's through my lips, aleph. When I said aleph, I wasn't thinking throat, palate, lips. I just said aleph. But what leads to the aleph is the voice in the heart. And the cry, ah! A simple cry, not a made-up cry, a real cry, an organic cry. When somebody, God forbid, would cry out of pain, or somebody would cry out of great excitement or joy. And there'd be a sound that's uttered. They say, what are you so, what happened? And then the person calms down and starts to speak and puts that voice in the heart into sophisticated speech. The memutza was the simple cry. But the memutza came out with the, ah, Aleph. That's the shofar. That's what the shofar represents. But the shofar is not people saying, ah, it's the sound of the shofar, because that's an action which is taken. And mitzvahs have to be performed in the flesh. So we actually are acting out what's happening in order for God to re-engage with our world. The shofar becomes our memutza. And on a deeper level, just like the plain cry that simple voice before it becomes sophisticated speech represents the voice of the heart. That simplicity within our souls is how we connect to the essence of God. We connect with God in a sophisticated way by virtue of the sophisticated words that we mouth. And that's the verses of Malchius, Achredus, and Shephras. But it has to come along with a simple cry. And the simplest of cries is the oldest wind instrument known to humankind. The sound of the horn, which has been used since antiquity. The first time somebody discovered that when you hollow out the horn, it can be used as a medium to broadcast sound. That simplistic sound acted upon 
and heard by everybody serves to stimulate our own deepest essence so that we become in a mamutsa state to be able to actualize and to receive Hashem's blessing in a real way. And that's what the shofar is about. So this is about discovering the memutza, the havoras eis aleph, that simple sound, oz yochel hischalik, hakoil baisius pratim. Then it can come into details, and it comes beemtzois eis havora aleph. It comes to that simple aleph, shenishma bekoil poshu tamachalik havoras eisius pratim. It comes through, and then it goes into details. So al derech dogma for by paradigm means of illustration. Kishatzorach leimer tevis vayoymer. Vayoymer means and he said, God spoke the world into existence. Asara mamoris nivrahoylam with ten utterances. Vayoymer Hashem. God said yehi or let there be light. So when you want to say vayoymer in vayoymer sheyesh ba you have hey osius you have five Hebrew letters mechulakim mikama mitzoyis mechulakim. The word vayoymer isn't from any one part of the mechanism of speech. It's not from the throat only, because. The vav comes from the sfosayim, from the lips. The aleph comes from the throat. The mem comes from the chech, or the palate. So if you want to say the word vayoymer, we have the, so to speak, letters coming from many different places. We're talking resh is coming from shinaim, from jaws that close. So we have a concerted effort concert of sound in which the mechanism of speech is all working together at once in tandem but it needs some mamutza, a non-communicative voice so that the voice of the heart can become an intelligible an intelligent pardon me in a, a intelligible not intelligible a intelligible expression that it becomes something which we can relate to a communication. Teva From the heart, all you can get is the simple ah or a, the sound of the aleph. But that sound can be mischalic to the different mitzvahs. And that leads you to be able to say that word. And now we understand mutzah. And this is the first point. In a 10-point mimer. This is the first point of the mimer. Now, it's taken us a lot of time to chew through and digest this. So, it's a point. It's a point. And we talked about something which we still don't, we don't really know what it is. We don't understand how Hashem speaks the world into reality. But we can understand about the myriad of levels. And we can understand about mamutza or middle ground, or middle point. And we can understand how whilst there's an element of our own souls which is so deep and so profound and connected to God that it can't be expressed at all. But in order for that deepest level to become the actual expression of our ongoing Yiddishkeit observance, there needs to be a facilitator, a connecting point how do we connect to our deepest essence? How do we express our deepest essence? The answer is, the voice of the heart 
comes forward with a simple cry. And that, my dear friends, is a detail and understanding of the simple call of the chauffeur. And we're going to leap to the end of this very nuanced, extremely intricate, sophisticated and profound teaching. And we're going to go straight to the climbing, crowning climax for the next segment in which we'll talk about not the simple cry of the chauffeur or the tekiah, but we'll talk about the need for broken sounds and breaking the sound as in the shvarim and the trua represents a totally different move forward in the transformative actualization of Hashem's goodwill for us into concrete goodness that we can actually taste. I hope you'll come back to join for part two of this series next week. I hope that you found this uplifting, inspirational, insightful, and if you did, please, Take a moment to like, and I'd appreciate it if you could share with others. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Thanks again for joining. Have an amazing day. And may we merit to hear the great sound, the greatest, most beautiful sound ever, the sound of the chauffeur of Mashiach, the Mehra, will be Amenu, speedily, and in our days. Amen.